Hello beautifuls, welcome to Her Sexual Space, a podcast where we create a sex-positive space to engage in empowering discussions for building relational and sexual awareness. Today's guest is Diana Sadat. Diana is a registered clinical counselor, an ASEX certified sex therapist, and professor of human sexuality at a private university in Vancouver, Canada. She is the founder and clinical director at Allura Sex Therapy Center, a group practice in Vancouver that specializes and exclusively works with sexuality and couples issues. Her clinical specialties include low desire, sexual pain, and healing after sexual trauma, as well as less common issues related to paraphilias. She enjoys working with a broad variety of issues in therapy, as well as supporting other therapists in growing their skills and understanding in the field of sex therapy and sexuality. Her passion and mission as a sex therapist is to help individuals and couples, as well as other therapists who may work with individuals and couples who are struggling with sexuality-based issues, to have a more connected and pleasure-focused relationship to their sexuality. Welcome to the podcast, Diana. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Diana is the only ASEX certified sex therapist in British Columbia. Is that correct? That is correct. It was kind of wow. my, my career like goal when I decided to be a sex therapist. I'm like, this is going to be it. Like, I'm going to be the first one. And even if there become more, I will always get to be the first one. <laughs> yes. What an accomplishment. And you are one of 10 in Canada? Yeah. Sex therapist? Yeah, I think, you know, given that it's called the American Association, I think uh, Canadians shy away from it. Um, and the fact that, so I think that's really what it is. I'd also say that sex therapy isn't really so much a popular niche to specialize in uh, within Canada, just because in general, uh, the model of training therapists only really trains therapists as general clinicians versus in the U.S., you know, you do have some of those focuses that um, you can declare throughout your programs. We just don't have that here. Really? Yeah. And I wonder for you, um, with, with, being, <laughs> with being the only one in, in, your, in your city. Um, well, only one in my city and my, sti- um, and my province. BC, uh, wow. British Columbia is our province, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You must have an amazing wait list. <laughs> oh, you know, people always say that. And I'm like, I mean, I have a wait list and I don't like it. I don't like having a wait list because yeah. I, you know, I don't like having to tell someone that, hey, you know, if you want to work with me, you've got to wait a little bit. And sometimes if you need certain time slots, you might actually have to wait almost like up to half a year. And that just feels awful. Yeah. So it's one of the things that I just, um, you know, awesome in so many ways but when it comes to you know the actual therapeutic part it it does suck to have to tell people they have to wait for sure so is there anyone you refer them out to or anyone you can refer them out to yeah i mean this is why i really created allura why i um so Mm. allura is my group practice that i expanded from i guess it's been i guess a about almost two years now um like a year and a half a year and eight months ago I was like I was so busy I need to expand and I don't have anyone I really trust to refer to and so I started bringing on associates and what's nice is that we have such a lovely um I say little people say it's not little but uh, there's about 10 therapists on my team and we're very close uh we're close-knit we're like a little family and everyone is really committed to pursuing further education. It's nice that we all share similar values um, and just the way that we approach working with sexuality. And so that's been probably the best part is having this team that I trust whoever I can refer to within my team. I know I can trust. That's good. I like that you went that route because a lot of people get out of grad school and private practice or even starting a group practice it's not what we are trained to do the business Mm -hmm. side rarely comes up um i I believe we're trained to go work with an agency or clinic um but it's amazing that you have that experience and you were able to go out and create your own group practice and i admire that i think that's incredible um that you're able to do that so I know we jump straight into your your work. I love it. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, if you if you don't mind sharing, how do you identify yourself in the world, and if you can tell us a little bit about your background? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I identify, I mean, I feel like there's so many different ways that I identify. So I almost like, I try not to just create a sentence, even though I do that sometimes. So um, I am part of the LGBTQ community. I identify as either bisexual or queer, just kind of depending depending on the day or depending how nice. I'm feeling. Um, sometimes <laughs> I like actually like really owning the bisexuality because there's so much biphobia um, in in both the heterosexual and LGBTQ mm-hmm. community. So I can't really say that it's one or the other. So I feel like sometimes if I can own it, I do. Um, I, I, am, I am cisgender and I, in terms of my other identities, I am of um, mixed ethnicity. I am a, a woman of color. Um, but I have a lot of white skin privilege. So even just, I mean, people, people who want, um, a BIPOC therapist often reach out to me, but to people who aren't, who are white, they think I'm white as well. So (laughs) I guess in some ways that's almost worked nicely because it still feels like the people who need me and need, uh, that connection can still find me. Um, but also, you know, the, the white part of it is... That can get messy. I could I could go down a rabbit hole yes, about that. I, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So let's talk. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, your career decision. Um, of course, I, I wonder every time I meet a, a new sex therapist, mm-hmm. did you know that you wanted to be that? You know, when they ask earlier on, you know, like in in elementary school, what you wanted to be when you grew up. Um, I wonder if that came naturally for you or was it a process of self-discovery that took you down that path? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely self-discovery. Um, I can't imagine, I can't imagine a young child saying, I want to be a person. I mean, that would be really awesome. But I don't, I was like, I don't know if I'd ever meet a child who would say that. Maybe my child one day would say that, but they also might oh my. Like that. <laughs> right? Or they might be like, no, I don't want to talk about that at all. Right. It could go in either direction. Exactly. But yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, how I kind of fell into this, I think I, I kind of knew from, as I started really thinking about careers and the future when I was in high school, kind of landed on the fact that I thought I would want to be a therapist and I kind of jumped around at first I wanted to be a child psychologist and now I'm like no I could never work with children my goodness I can't believe I thought that was a good idea uh, and so I'm like, what, what is your reason though because when I say that it's because the parents uh, right but what's your reason what is my reason I I just I like to communicate people to communicate at certain levels and yeah. And so, and I feel like actually, you know, as I say that, I think I could work with a child before I could work with a teenager. Um, so that's, <laughs> I feel like just people under 18, I've, I've worked with some folks who are like 17, but it just, you know, I think there's people out there who are really good at working with kids. Yeah, I do not think sure. I'm one of them. So yeah, I will leave that to someone who is really good at that. Yeah. And I, that's one thing I like about this um, field is you can go with what works for you your values the niche you're comfortable with um there's so much flexibility right you can you can change that at any time exactly exactly yeah so i was like not that then i was like maybe i'll you know work work with depression and anxiety and then it was in my undergrad i think i was in my like second no i think it was my first year and i um went home on the weekend from living uh, on campus and i was hanging out with my mom and watching tv i think i'm scrolling through my phone and she just goes you know i think you'd be a really good sex therapist and i just like look at her and i remember looking at her and being like what what is she saying and i was like what even is that and i mean she, she points at the tv and she's like oh like she's a sex therapist like she helps people have better sex lives and i i just remember how uncomfortable i was and, I, and thinking back on it now, I'm like, well, of course I was uncomfortable. I don't think my mom and I had ever talked about sex before. Yes. So that was going to be my next question. If y'all had that dialogue already going or if that just jumped out of nowhere. It jumped out of nowhere. And I, like, I was close with my mom. We have a mm-hmm. good relationship. But I mean, we never talk about sex culturally. You know, my family is... I'm not going to say they're conservative, but um, I mean, just culturally, sex isn't something you talk about. Um, you do it, and it's it's okay. They don't say that you can't have it, but you just don't talk about it. So we never talked about it. So 
When she said that, it was really awkward and weird. And I remember brushing her off. And I went back on that Sunday and I told my roommate that my mom said that to me. And we had a really good laugh about it. And then I ignored it for about like two or three years. And in my third year, I took a human sexuality class as part of my degree. And like, that was it. That was it for me. That, that class, class is always life changing. Oh, that person, to be honest, that professor. Yeah, was, when you get the good professor for that class. Oh yeah. my, I was like, I want to do that. And then I, I remembered that conversation with my mom and I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be a sex therapist. And so I spent weeks researching it um, and what I would need to do. And after that, I just pretty much ne- not, never really looked back. Um, and every step along the way just confirmed that this was exactly what I was supposed to do. Yeah. So you missed the awkward part of having to come out as a sex therapist because I felt like even with me choosing that path, I had to say to my family, hey, this is my niche. This is the area I'm kind of specializing in. That was awkward. And for a lot of uh, sex therapists, I hear like it's it's weird having to tell your family and maybe not so much your friends, but your family, especially if you grew up in a conservative culture, like this is what I'm going to do for work. (laughs) So you kind of missed out that part since your mom was the one who introduced it to you. Yeah, I mean, my dad, on the other hand, my parents are together, but I'm not I'm not super close. My dad, we don't talk about a lot of things. And so. Um, I think my mom kind of just told him what I do and I didn't think he would be very comfortable with it. But one time we were looking through my website after I just had gotten it made a few years ago and he goes, he goes, what? It's sex. People have it. And I was like, I looked at him. I'm like, I, who are you? I honestly, I was like, I was not expecting that to come out of his mouth. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well. I'm glad that your mom introduced it to you because you look like you're a trailblazer and I'm just so impressed. And I think the work you're doing is so incredible. Um, I've read some of your articles and I've, you know, browsed through your website. Um, So I wonder, you know, how did you come to, uh, so you have a group practice. Um, I wonder what issues do you all primarily see and what's it like just running a, a group practice? Yeah, I was like, those are two big questions. I was like, which one will I start with? Um, Maybe I'll start with, you know, in general, running a group practice, it's, um, to be honest, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and a lot more work than being in private practice. And I wouldn't trade it for for the world um, because getting getting to talk to different therapists, Also, you get to hear such a wide variety of cases. Um, Everything about it, it's like easily 10 times the work of private practice. And yet I would never go back. Uh, So it's it's a lot of administrative work, but it's also a lot of support. Um, Because when you're when you're pretty much the head of a practice, even though I really try not to create like a power differential, it it exists because that's just the nature of Mm -hmm. of, um, just the way businesses are structured. And so I think one of the things that I love the most and is also the most stressful is uh, definitely the the support element um, with other therapists and, you know, offering case consultations every every week. And I offer office hours to like just drop in and talk about anything or or if you want to talk about a case, we can. Or if you want to just talk about like random things, we can do that too. And so those are those are the things I that go into running a practice. That's a lot, but I also love. Um, in terms of what we work with, you know, there's another, uh, there's one other like sex therapy clinic in Vancouver. And what I love is that we just work in such different ways that we really focus on completely different things. So for us, we really work a lot, um, a lot relationally. Um, so our focus is very relational. So then the issues that come in are very relational. Um, a lot of sexual functioning issues, um, but often they come in through like couples or they come in through just that discrep those issues between two people um and so or three people we work a lot with non-monogamy that's pretty big in our clinic as well um and so i'd say everyone has slightly different specialties but in general we really work with people who aren't just experiencing like 
kind of just like random symptoms um, or just some sexual symptoms that are generally needing a lot more support and there's other things going on. Um, we don't work as often with paraphilias or BDSM and kink. Um, it might come into sessions, but those don't often tend to be the focus of why uh, people reach out to us. And I heard you uh, almost hinting at uh, sexual desire discrepancies. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> for our, yeah. So for our listeners who may not have a you know a very good understanding of what sexual desire discrepancy is, mm-hmm. can you maybe uh, break that down a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you know thinking of it as it's at its simplest terms. You know, I I really believe throughout throughout your throughout your DSM, throughout your like books, like let's just go relationally. The desire discrepancy at its core is that one person wants more or less sex than the other person. Mm-hmm. So there's a gap in between um, how much or how frequently you want to be having sex. At its core, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's really simple, and yet I feel like we um, we make it out to be such a weird, like, clinical thing that happens. And then I'm just like, how often would you say that there's a gap between two people and what they are interested in or like, even if they like the same thing? Pretty often. So it, mm-hmm. I like to normalize it in that way. Yeah, and I, I like that you bring it down to that level because oftentimes when couples have those issues, it can be seen as... Almost something like medically wrong or something that, you know, we need to really address um, in in some type of medical fashion. But with that, so when that shows up in your office, um, so if you want to tell us the different types of uh, desire discrepancies and and what that would look like, or I guess responses. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it, I mean, it looks in a lot of different ways. Um, I'd say our practice, um, it comes in a lot more through one person ex- truly experiencing low desire or an absence or interest in, um, in sex uh, with, with their partners or on their own. That can also vary. Um, we see a lot less couples who are just saying, oh, we just have a difference, but, what, but we still both feel like we want it. A normal amount normal mm-hmm. i say in air quotes right um <laughs> i always feel like i have to add that caveat um but i'd say so there's almost two types you can see ones where people are just feeling like they'd like to have more sex and they just have different uh, differences in their interests and sometimes mm-hmm. it's one person is really feeling a low de- like low desire um, and we kind of look at it in that way. There's also the occasional other side of things where one person has pretty average, you know, libido. They're interested most of the time, but their partner is on the other end where they're feeling more hypersexual. So they have a really high sex drive, which actually has its own difficulties as well. For sure. So when a couple comes in with those issues, uh, where do you begin? And do you, well, I guess just answer that one first. Where do you begin? <laughs> Where do you begin? Yes. Well, you know, if a couple comes in and they sit down, I think, you know, I I really try to approach it with the fact um, that I, I don't know anything about this couple. I don't know if this is a relationship issue. I don't know if this is an individual issue for one of them. Um, and realistically, is there such a thing as an individual issue? That's also right. questionable. That yeah. Really, the reason desire discrepancy is an issue is because of the fact there's two people. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't have a discrepancy. Yeah, um, you'd, so, be doing, you'd be doing exactly, whatever you need to do when you need yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, that in and of itself says that there's a relational component to it. Yeah. At least the distress is. Um, but the cause of it could be more individual. Um, so I'm really kind of starting a general assessment uh, when someone comes in. I also don't like that word. I'm not very clinical in that way. So I kind of, yeah. I really call for sessions, getting to know each other sessions. Yeah. I want to get to know like... Building rapport. The, that's what I yeah, call it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, you know, some people love the, you know, really clinical approach. You're not going to get that with me. Um, we're going to say that we're going to get to know each other, that uh, there's all these pieces of the puzzle that I am not aware of. And today we're going to try and assemble uh, part of it, but I'm not going to get to know all of it this time. So uh, I also like to let people know that, you know, the process isn't instant. It takes time the same way that this issue is an issue over time. 
that they aren't coming into my office after it's been an issue for a week. They come in after it's been an issue for not even months, like realistically years. Yeah. So that's really good for expectations because I think sometimes yeah. couples come in or individuals come into therapy and they think this needs to be done ASAP or, you know, like overnight almost. Yeah. And it's really about kind of changing and challenging those expectations and being realistic so they can take that pressure off themselves as well that things are going to change uh, dramatically in in a few sessions i i'll never say that it can't change a little bit or it can't have some change but i really like to normalize that you know it's going to take a while same way that it took you a while to land into this place because at this point the issue isn't just the discrepancy. The issue is how you feel about the issue now. So really for sessions, like I said, I'm going to be, I usually get them to walk me through their relationship um, from the very start. Yeah, um, I love that. Like yeah. how they first met. <laughs> exactly. I love that question. How did you yeah. first meet? Because then you can also, you know, as tell how they feel about each other now. You know, you see the couples that like start like smiling and they laugh about their first story versus the first time they met or their first um, moments together versus couples who, you know, have more frustration can even, you know, really connect to the good things. Uh, so I find that to be very telling in and of mm-hmm. itself. For sure. So we start there. Yeah. And I know for sure we, as, as therapists, we, we look for the non-verbals a lot. And I think sometimes the clients are not always aware that we are assessing in our minds, you know, on just what's happening with their connection in in the office. Yes. We're, 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 we can see so much about in like in office, we can see, we can pretty much see everything, everything they're saying or not saying, you can see it. Uh, Mm -hmm. It happens all in the office. And so, yeah, I like to start at the beginning, what their romantic relationship looked like, their sexual relationship. Um, I like to just kind of almost timeline it a little bit because um, I want to see if there's been major moments or experiences. Um, so whether that's mm-hmm. maybe like having children, getting married, um, positive ones as well. People always only want to go towards the negative ones. I'm like, no, like when did you get engaged? What, how, if you got married, when did that happen? Um, you know, big celebrations, good and bad. You know, we want to look at all of them because any of them could have become a, been a disruption. And so really beautiful timeline. And then, um, and then I kind of decide from there what happens next. Yeah, for sure. So I know you said earlier that you're not very clinical in that sense, but do you use any tools to quantify a uh, level of desire or like an inventory or anything like that? Not. I do not. Um, I think it's because in the end, what I, what I care to hear is that the person feels a difference. You know, it, I, for me, I could use an assessment and that's really just going to tell me a score, but that score means nothing without the meaning or the interpretation or the feeling behind it. So I, I mean, I, I have used, um, I have used some assessment tools. I use them for my groups that I run more often than anything but I just don't I don't do them with individuals I don't do them with couples because I just want to I go with what they tell me because that's their life that's the reality yeah that's what we have to accept their their truth about you know what they're experiencing okay um so how do couples begin dialogues about desire discrepancies so how do they talk to each other how do you recommend that they talk to each other when they suspect because I know there could be a lot of resentment and defensiveness and you know how do you recommend that they start having those conversations yes I love that question because um instantly everyone wants to problem solve they're like how do we make this gap smaller how do we make you want less sex or feel like you don't need sex from me as often and how do you know I make myself want to have sex more often and Usually that gets you nowhere because chances are there already is resentment there. There already Mm -hmm. is some frustration. And so that is going to activate the moment you try and problem solve, which means you are stuck in your own little bubbles and you're going to clash. 
So I say, let's pause the problem solving for a moment. And I think that's, you know, pretty, pretty a common couples approach with not just sex, but really anything is that we always want to problem solve. We always want to jump to how do we fix it? And yet we often can't fix it if we don't really understand and hear what's going on. Right. So that's what we, that's what I like to um, practice with couples. So I love, 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 love the Imago dialogue, um, but I'll describe it since, you know, people are like, I don't know what that is, nor do I probably care what that is. <laughs> so the Imago dialogue, you know, there's quite a few different versions of this. Um, a lot of couples approaches have this type of dialogue, but really it's a nice setup um, for a way to you know, speak uh, or send is how Imago therapy describes it. Information to your partner and they take it in and they really work on understanding and hearing you without trying to explain their pers- their perspective, their experience, what they feel. They're just trying to make sure they understand you. And the particular reason I like this tool and not other ones is that you keep reflecting and you check if you get it and the person will keep explaining because often when you hear it reflected back you're like oh wait I didn't mean that or Mm -hmm. oh wait when you said like when you reflected back to me I thought about this and I wanted to add this on and so you keep doing that and you keep checking until the person says no I think you got it and then once that person says that, you want to provide a validating statement mm-hmm. and then an empathy statement. And I like to say here, neither of those means that you agree. Yes. You don't have to agree <laughs> with what they say. And you that's can, often the misconception yeah. that we have to always agree. Yes. And why people don't, um, you know, don't end up actually practicing uh, validating or empathizing because they're like, but I don't agree. And I'm like, you can, you can actually understand something without agreeing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do. We're saying based on what you're experiencing in your reality, it makes sense then that when you hear this, this is what you feel, mm-hmm. right? We're just talking about their reality. Um, oh, you know, over and over and over again. And so sometimes people don't like um, tools like this because they find it really forced. And I almost want to say that's kind of the point, to be honest. The point mm-hmm. is not even that it's forced, but that it's uh, that it's contained. Uh, so these tools, they're not the way you normally would speak to one another. And that's when I would say, but do you do you find the way you're speaking to one another actually effective right now? <laughs> And chances are you don't. Otherwise, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. be here. Exactly. (laughs) Right? So I always like to kind of put those out there, let people know that, um, and let them know, you know what? Yeah, this is going to be different, and that's okay. And so once the one person feels understood and validated and empathized with, you can switch. And sometimes you might have to switch back as well. Um, But... That tool is really effective, and I think it's actually one of the best um, communication tools specifically around sex. I love that. I love that. So going back to uh, sexual desire, so I'm wondering, um, with low desire, what is often the culprit's, um, you know, for low desire when when you see that in a couple? Yeah. So... I mean, there's there's different things that we want to look at. There's different things, you know, I'd I'd want to explore. Usually, it's kind of first. We of course always want to clear and check out any medical or biological issue because we we don't know, we don't know, and we really can't fully assess for that. So almost always, if not always, actually, um, if a person hasn't gone to the doctor yet, I would recommend they do um, because. I mean, the chances, and I'll be honest, I don't think it's happened very often where it's been a purely biological issue, but you never know. And so we just want to know that that's not the issue. And then we can not even worry or entertain it. So a medical workup would be really important. Um, And medications. So depending what medications you're on, some are are related to to libido, especially like mental health. Um, things like antidepressants, mm-hmm. um, SSRIs, and, oh, such culprits for mm-hmm. um, for libido. Even birth control, to be honest, does have yes. some effect. I always um, ask about that for sure. 
right? And I, I, I try to really move away from this idea of there's no research on it. It's like, you know what? If people are saying it, that's kind of good enough for me, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I know some people say that birth control, there's no research that it affects, um, it affects libido. And I'll be honest, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. From what I've seen, um, I it almost doesn't make sense how when we affect hormones, how would it not affect uh, exactly. desire? Yeah, and that's that's my go-to. <laughs> yeah, and that's where I actually like to differentiate between almost libido and desire. Is libido to me is more of the medical or biological underpinnings, and so I like to kind of check on those things, like the like physical and how they feel uh, in their bodies. Do they experience pain? Those to me are more things that affect libido. Desire is more the psychological. Um, and I like differentiating it like that because if someone has a ton of medical issues getting in the way, well, we know how much of that then is going to be medical. And then the, the what other side is more emotional or psychological. For sure. So I find that helpful. So I check on those things. And then besides that, to be honest, um, well, pain, pain is one of the, one big reason. And that's where I also like to say so many women and people with vaginas experience pain during sex and they don't realize that that's not normal. That's actually not something we want you to be experiencing. Right. So pain, I always ask about pain because sometimes people don't even volunteer that information because they don't think it's relevant. <laughs> Yeah, and I discussed that in my last episode, Um, you know, just how we're made to believe that certain things were natural to experience insects when, of course, it should be pleasurable, it should feel good, you know, there shouldn't be that, you know, but, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of unlearning that is being done um, in this era of time. Exactly. Um, And I'm just so glad that we have people like you and, you know, and you. Yeah, growing, yeah. Um, who can correct some of those messages? Because if no one's having the conversation, how are we going to start challenging those those ideas? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so with sexual pain, so if uh, uh, an individual client comes in, express sexual pain, um, what I'm understanding is you first recommend their you know, that they see their, either their primary care physician or their OBGYN um, to see if there's any underlying issues, right? Yeah, um, you know, I would always recommend that just so, again, we can confirm that there isn't, um, you know, sometimes pain can come from um, like UTIs or um, STIs as well. Mm -hmm. All of these things can cause yeast infections. That's actually one that people don't realize that um, it can be a symptom is pain. So, you know, we want to make sure those aren't happening, but usually the one person i say person but one professional i i always recommend when i work with pain is a pelvic floor physiotherapist um without a doubt i don't think this work can be done without one and because as a sex therapist we can support and help you explore the emotional the psychological um, impacts of pain, both what led to almost the interpretation or the experience of pain and what's getting you stuck there now. Um, And we can't be sure of what's happening. And a pelvic floor physiotherapist is wonderful because they are so they're physiotherapists who are really their niche or i think in the u.s you, y'all call it a niche um they're, they're niche i said niche. niche i said niche i'm from the caribbean okay okay i know in the states a lot of people call it a niche so I'm like, yeah. I, I call it a niche but really that's what they yeah. study is the pelvic floor mm-hmm. and so they understand and can do physical exams but it's better than actually doing that through your medical doctor, through your GP, because mm-hmm. honestly, they care about your experience not being painful. They want to, even the assessment is so different that there's um, there's a level of care and tr- like trauma-informed practice for many public floor physiotherapists for how they approach even doing an assessment with you. Mm-hmm. So 
I always recommend one. Some people don't want to work with one. They're not prepared for it. And so I plant the seed. I plant the seed at the start of any session where I hear pain. I've always put that in there. Um, some people right away, they're like, yes, I will go. And others are like, oh, okay, but they don't actually do anything. And yeah. there's also the last category that are like, nope, I'm already outside my comfort zone. By being here, I can't do that. So, you know, I slow, I can't, I'm not going to force anyone. There's a lot we can do together. And so we'll work through that together until almost always, it rarely has ever happened where someone never goes. Eventually they kind of start to say, Hey, you know what? Now that I'm almost feeling more comfortable about this, you you were talking about a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Can you tell me more about that? I'm like, yeah. okay, yeah, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People know what they need. Eventually, they come around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, is that an area where you would start to introduce? So, let's say, let's say that was a particular client, um, and they were not ready to take that step. Um, what would you recommend in terms of uh, still being able to enjoy the pleasures of their sexuality or sex um, without intercourse? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I always, anytime there's pain, we kind of go with the idea of we don't want to keep, uh, we don't want to keep that cycle going. So we need to break it. And the easiest way is stop doing the thing that causes you pain. Like, and, and then there's also, you know, the, the grieving of that. There's the beliefs and messages that we receive around, um, around what sex should be and how it should look. And so sometimes that takes a while. That takes processing, uh, with an individual or with a couple. Some couples pretty quickly they're, they, they're okay with that. They're like, you know, I, I'm okay with stopping, you know, trying to do this because it's clearly not helping us and we want to have, you know, a good sex life. And so we're going to be okay with putting that aside for now. And they put intercourse to the side and we work on other types of sex they can be having. Yeah. Other other couples take a little longer. If not, they don't want to come around. Um, the messaging and the belief is really, really ingrained in yes, either one or the other. Yeah. So for our listeners, if they're, you know, if, if they're on that path or they mm-hmm. fall along that spectrum, what would you recommend outside of intercourse? Um, and is that based on, you know, what the client is, I guess it, it is what the client is comfortable with, but mm-hmm. what menu do you, do you provide to them? <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I, I actually, um, I go the other, the approach of we're going to take sex com- almost like completely off the table because usually there's other, uh, and when I say sex, I, I'm going to really clarify, I don't just mean intercourse. I mean mm-hmm. almost all types of sexual activity. Yeah. Um, I say, let's just take that away for now and focus on just being able to be relaxed together and being present with one another and just exploring one another's bodies. So I, I do use uh, I do use Sensate Focus very, very often, which um, just in really quick terms to make sure that people who are listening even know what that is. It's, it's a touching technique technique Mm -hmm. Uh, I try not to call it an exercise because that tends to make a difference because it's really it's a technique it's a technique it's a mindfulness technique where you're practicing um you know focusing your attention on the contact between your hand and your partner's body and exploring and touching for your own experience rather than for theirs so then we can break that um that performative cycle I mean it's great for everything honestly it's a great uh, technique not just for pain uh but for a lot of different issues but for this one it's so we can break the anxiety that touch has to lead to sex which means pain and so once we can almost neutralize that um then we can start working on adding pleasurable experiences that we know don't cause pain so and that will be couple dependent that will be individual some people are okay with you know trying things like oral sex, playing with toys. Um, This is where, you know, I get them to get creative. Um, I love those yes, no, maybe so lists. I get people to make those. (laughs) Um, There's also a really, really fun website. I want to say it's called Mojo Upgrade. Um, If I remember correctly, that's what it's called. But it's a nice little questionnaire. Um, Individuals do, they do it themselves. And then they send it to their, um, they only send the results to your partner 
for what you matched on um, interest. So if you don't like something and they do, you're not going to get that suggestion. <laughs> so I love that because it gets them to start talking about uh, things that they would be interested in trying. And yeah. it opens up their mind that sex is not just intercourse. There's so many things that you could be doing that likelihood feel a lot better than intercourse, mm -hmm. uh, especially for women and those with vaginas. Intercourse likely is not going to be the number one thing and really noticing that and finding that out. Yeah, that's, I love all the gems and resources you are dropping. I hope the listeners are taking notes. <laughs> But of course, I will add some of that in the notes as well. Um, so I know your focus is a lot on decentering intercourse. So I think that's, you know, that falls right up, you know, right in that alley. Yes, I, I really, you know, I think that, um, and I mean, we understand what, now we understand why intercourse is, you know, kind of held on a pedestal. I mean, we see it. It's a very patriarchal concept um, because ultimately intercourse really is um, pleasurable. It's the most pleasurable for those with penises. Exactly. And, and so we kind of have assumed because that must be the case, it must be equivalent for women and those with vaginas. And ultimately, you know, that's just not true because of the way that the vagina really is. It doesn't have a lot of nerve endings internally. And so it's not going to create that pleasure. Um, it can, it absolutely can. And it's usually because it's in conjunction with other types of stimulation, exactly. mm -hmm. particularly clitoral stimulation. And so mm -hmm. I like to decenter intercourse because... I really think sex should be about pleasure um, and just how, how, like, what creates pleasure for you. There's more than just one thing that creates pleasure and getting people to explore that and discover that can be yeah. such a rich experience. And so I think pleasure is so healing. Um, I could go on and on about pleasure. Sometimes <laughs> I'm like, you know what? Recently, I think it was after or maybe our last phone chat, I was like, you know what? I feel like I should write a book about pleasure. <laughs> I know there is pleasure activism, but I'm like, I want to yeah. write a book about like not just pleasure through activism, but like pleasure in like healing and actually really like focus. Yeah. That. Yeah. You can do that. And I've heard a lot of people say like through the questions they get asked on podcasts, they get really good ideas for, you know, areas based on those questions. Cause those are questions people are asking. Um, so you already know for sure, you know, there's yeah. a, a demand. <laughs> I think it's such, a, information. it's such a cool concept. And I just, I not even caught concept, but just reality. And, um, you know, I, I wish more and more people could hear it. Um, and, you know, I introduce it to every client I have. To be honest, most are on board. Of course, you know, you have the people who are really, really struggling with that because, again, it, our society ingrains things. It's been passed on for so long. How could almost they not believe anything other than what they do? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Good yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. So how can non-therapists uh, best support women with um, these presenting issues around um, desire and, you know, mm -hmm. just issues and maybe anxiety too around um, sex? Yeah. Ultimately, you know, non-sex therapists, you, you have the skills, you know, they have the skills to work with, um, with issues. They, if anything, what they probably just lack more than anything is the particular knowledge and experience around, um, around desire specifically. But there's so much around it that can be explored in a non, um, in a, for a non-sex therapist. So exploring, you know, relationship to anxiety, history of anxiety, depression, um, PTSD. That's a really big one. Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately that, if you can do anything, regardless of who your client is, is make them feel comfortable to bring in sex into the therapy room to talk about it. Because that that's so what important. I hear, right? I hear that all. I have so many clients who I'm their second. Like they see this, they see two therapists at the same time because they think they can't, and nothing. They feel like they can't talk to their therapist about sex yeah. so they come to me to talk about it and and i see that i see that and that's the gap that i identified that's why i was like you know what this is 
this is my niche. This is what I'm going to do. Because mm-hmm. I see how clients' faces light up when you ask questions about about their intimate lives or, you know, where they might be struggling with that because no one else is asking. Yes. You know, and oftentimes it's it's the underlying thing, but no one has asked that. So I, I see it and that's that's my main reason for going this route because I know it's there. Um, and I don't advertise as sex therapy. So when that comes up, you can, I really see how they, yeah. <laughs> how yeah. they light up. Like no one else ever asked me that before. And I'm just so excited to talk about it. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I love it. And that's what clients need. Um, it's, it's why I'm so passionate about, you know, teaching and training therapists is because, it's so important and we are just not taught um it, i mean it mimics society we're not taught to talk about sex in general why would we be taught to talk about sex and therapy <laughs> for sure yeah so all good stuff yeah. so i just want to ask uh, what mm. do you continue to do to stay on top of things so i i know you've shared and you know some of what you might be reading or what you pull from um but actively what do you what do you what do you do to stay on on top? Yeah. Um, I mean, I love learning. I'm such a, I'm such a nerd. I'm such a geek when it comes to learning. And you know what? I'm not even, I'm not ashamed of it whatsoever. I love that. I love to learn. So, um, I'm always looking to, I mean, in general, I always like to be training in new therapy techniques, even non-sex therapy techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I, I don't think that there's just one way to practice sex therapy. And so I like to like be trained in different approaches that can be used for all types of issues. Um, I'm currently actually starting my um, internal family systems uh, training. I'm starting level one next week. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, besides that, I try to, you know, take, I find for myself, just knowing my style of learning, I love podcasts um, and I love books, but the best way for me to learn is, to be honest, is taking classes. Um, it keeps my attention. <laughs> it keeps my attention the best. So I try to do that. Yeah. I need structure. I need yeah. structure, which is, I'm going to say the joys of an ADHD therapist right here is, is needing structure. And so trainings just help me with that. So I try to take me trainings um, at least, I mean, we, we do them in, in-house at my group practice once a month. And so I love, I love those two hours of learning different things that I'm not used to um, or that I haven't really learned very much about. I love doing that. Besides that, I buy so many books. Um, and honestly, Instagram, I'm going to be honest, Instagram is an awesome way to learn things. Mm-hmm. It, it sure is. It sure is. But I love that you shared um, just trainings. I look forward to conferences. I look forward mm-hmm. to just being in a community and some sort of structured, you know, training where I can participate and share and ask questions and do all of that. Exactly. Um, like you, I, I love reading too. So I have so many books <laughs> and I find myself jumping from one to the other. So this yep. year my goal is to, you know what, start something and finish it, you know, yes. but it helps me because I see so many different things in therapy. So I can sometimes just jump to a book and get some insight or some resource that I might need with a client. Exactly. But I don't know about you. I always like start with reading one part of a book and then I get really excited and then I want to read all of it. And then within like a few days I do the same thing with another book so I have like 20 books on the go at all times yes I have yeah I have a few in rotation as well yeah yeah that's that's beautiful and I think that's part of what we do we have to continue to learn and grow because we're dealing with the human development and anything can pop up in the office at any given time so that's amazing yeah. Um, also, I wanted to find out from you. So if someone was wanting to pursue a career path, um, like what you are doing, um, what would be your advice or what would be your tip for them? Yeah. You know what I say? Um, you know, I say start looking at, you know, the almost like the route you want to take, uh, because there isn't one specific way to get here. There's a ton of different ways. And not, I can't say that one way is better than another. Though probably the only thing that I say is important is do pursue, like you should pursue a sex certification. 
And I say that because, you know, ultimately we want to protect our clients. And when we actually pursue certification through um, through bodies, like in regulation bodies like that, it provides our clients with the knowledge that we know what we're talking about. And so, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying that any organization is perfect, uh, but I do believe that pursuing ASEC certification will also not only for your clients, it also give you the proper training because it is rigorous mm-hmm. and it has a lot of things that they need you to do to become certified. But it those things are necessary. I think those things are necessary to be able to call yourself a sex therapist. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing. We we do have therapists who advertise sex therapy, but they don't have any training and yeah. and that too can cause harm to Absolutely. clients because oftentimes um if their sexual behavior doesn't align, mm-hmm. you know, it can be deemed as an issue or yes. an addiction or yeah. Yeah. So, so I like to say to clients, like, you know, the people who are listening, if you're out looking for a sex therapist, you know, I say ask, ask the therapist that you're talking to what kind of training they've, they've taken. That's um, important. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I'd say great if they've read books. I'm not saying that's not great, but, um, you know, that isn't enough to work with something as complex as sexuality. And so ask them. You know, it's okay. You know, it's okay if they're not pursuing ASEC certification. That's fine. But they should have some training under their belt if they're saying that they practice sex therapy. For sure. Beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) So where can our listeners connect with you online? Yeah, there's a few places. Um, I, I've been a little bit quiet on Instagram. I swear, I'm swear, I'm gonna get back there soon. Um, but you're doing I, a lot, so I'm sure you don't yeah. need Instagram to market or do anything. Uh, it's a lot. Yeah, I'm busy right now, so I um, I'm pretty quiet on Instagram right now. But I will be back there. So um, I have two Instagrams. I have my personal, uh, professional Instagram, which is Diana Stat, uh, just Diana Stat Therapy. Actually, I was gonna say sex therapy. I forgot I took the sex part mm-hmm. out of there. Um, and then the other one is my group practice. So if you live in British Columbia in Canada, you could actually follow us and actually maybe even work with us if you need to. Um, and that is Alura Therapy Center. And Alura is spelled A-L-L-U-R-A. Um, I'm sure you're going to include this in your notes. So I, I, won't, I won't even try and spell it then. Um, I got it. <laughs> and, then, and then my website is an awesome way to contact me. Uh, it's just um, And, you know, I put, I try to put things up there whenever I can. Also, you can contact me through my, through my website. So that's another way if you, if you want to chat with me. Also send me a DM. I love, I love chatting with people. Um, that's always a fun way to engage with folks. Yeah. All good. All good. Well, thank you so much for being uh, our guest today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, um, thank you and so much. I look forward to talking more with you. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we could talk a lot. I feel like yes. we could we could dive in even more if we if we could. We had more time. So thank you so for much sure. for having me. I love having these conversations. I think it's so important. Me too. I love talking to the experts. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank, thank you so much much as well to my listeners for joining us this week on her sexual space for more information on this week's topic check out our instagram page at her sexual space and our website www.hersexualspace.com and don't forget to subscribe rate review if you're on apple podcast um and talk to you soon see you guys next week